So have you ever been a little bit lacrimose? Yeah, if you know what that word is, I'm impressed because I definitely had to look it up. Okay? Uh, it means tearful or given to weeping. Many people are a little lacrimose this time of year as they sit down and start looking at their taxes, start figuring out what they have to do. Some people are lacrimose this time of year because their team did not make the NFL playoffs, or if they made it, they got eliminated. Sorry, Zeke, I think he's outside, but I just bless his heart. His, his Cowboys didn't make it. Other times, we get lacrimose over just random things that are happening in life, right? Our favorite TV show gets canceled, you know. Sausage biscuits are removed from the dollar menu at your breakfast joint. Yeah, that happened this week. Your medication goes up to $743 a pill after insurance. Your new cool tires cost you an extra $40 in gas mileage every week. Or your brand new cowboy hat does not meet dress code. I got you, Jackson. Looking out for you, brother. We all have moments in life where we have some lacrimose, you know, where we are, are sad, tearful. So where did I see that word? Well, I was reading about news radio and I came across a description of a news radio host named Gabriel Heater, and this was the description. He first came to notice with his lacrimose reports. <laughs> so I'm reading that going, well, I don't know what that means, so I Google it and find out what the word means. But it was the, the rest of the description that really caught my attention. It went like this. Whose gloomy voice, ever a quiver with hope, insisted in the face of worldwide calamity that there's good news tonight. That was his line. It started as a, a little ad lib. You know, there's good news tonight. But then it became the, the definition of his radio reports. There's good news tonight. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because Gabriel Heater was a news radio man during World War II. So that means during a time when the whole world was full of calamity. When the whole world was full of the fear and the worry and, and the death that came every single day, when the whole world was wrapped up with bad news, he brought just a little bit of comfort to the world by just saying, you know, there is good news tonight. But just saying there's good news tonight doesn't take away calamity, doesn't take away death, doesn't take away fear, doesn't take away worry. The, the word, or just saying the word, Saying the words, good news, does not immediately bring good news. Or does it? Is there a word that can immediately change your emotions and your attitude in the blink of a moment? Is there a word that can, can change how you're thinking and, and how you're feeling in a moment? A word that can bring peace and hope and joy and calm. A word that can build your confidence. A, a word that can calm your heart. A word that can bring a smile to your face. A, a word that can bring a gleam to your eye. A word that would help you blink with joy, even if you couldn't speak. Yeah, there's a word like that. What is it? Let's find out. Isaiah chapter 52, beginning with the first part of verse 9. Isaiah writes, Break forth, shout joyfully. About 700 years before Jesus lived, the Jewish people were finding out that they were about to be conquered 
And they were going to be forced out of their land. They were going to be political prisoners in a foreign land. Bad news was coming. There was no way to avoid it. They were promised that they were about to face some moments of discouragement, distress, and difficulty, depression, and defeat. It was coming. What about you? Have you ever experienced any of those things? Distress, difficulty, discouragement, depression, defeat? Maybe you're facing some of those things even today. Well, defeat and discouragement was on their way, but there was good news. The bad news was there, but there was good news. The good news were, was that the, the Babylonians, the people who were coming to conquer them, eventually they were going to be conquered. And after decades, the Jewish people were going to get to go home. There was bad news, but the good news was coming. And what did Isaiah describe the people were going to be like when this good news happened? He says they were going to break forth and shout joyfully. Break forth and shout joyfully. What do fans do when their, when their team comes into the stadium? They go nuts, right? Go, Ice Wolves! You know what I mean? They're, they're just there. They're just screaming. They, they can't wait for the game to start. What happens when grandparents walk up to the, to the window at the newborn place at the hospital? <gasps> she is so precious! Yeah. They, they break forth. They shout joyfully. And what do people do at the end of a, a lip-sync battle? You know, the, the audience, they scream, oh, man, he just rocked a curly shuffle. Man, that was amazing. That was so good. There's, there's cheering. There's applause. There's excitement. We all know what it means to break forth and shout joyfully. We, we know the scene. But, but notice there's one extra word that Isaiah throws in there. Listen to the next part of verse 9. Break forth, shout joyfully together. They weren't going to be off in a, a little private corner by themselves worshiping. They, they were going to be believers together worshiping and enjoying God. Ryan Shelton is in academic assessment. A few years ago, he wrote an article about what going to church looks like for a lot of folks every week. He says this, it's Sunday morning. You finally made it through the one lane of traffic not quarantined by the orange cones that descended overnight like locusts. You carefully maneuver the parking labyrinth as your child kicks the back of your car seat. By the time your small tribe disembarks the fun bus, you consider the hike to the lobby and wonder if you should ration food for that journey. You temporarily sign over your parental rights to the twitchy-eyed nursery staff and sneak a contraband coffee cup into the worship center. And then as you slide into a back pew and let out a sigh, you think to yourself, finally, I'm ready for some God and me time. Ever been there? Shelton goes on to say that, that actually the God and me time is, is really the wrong way to think about Sunday worship. Or at the very least, it's an incomplete way to think about Sunday worship. This is what Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. We gather together on Sundays. Why? To be together and stir one another to love. To be together and stir one another to good deeds, to be together and stir one another to encouragement. We are together for 
a reason. Put that practically in the concept of, of music, right? When, when we gather together on Sundays, we're, we're not just here to applaud a, a musical performance, right? The Bible says we're, we're together to, to worship on Sunday morning, that we're here to worship together, to sing together. Now, somebody might say, oh, preacher, I'm a, I'm a terrible singer. I can't sing, and I'd just rather sit and just listen to people sing. That's okay. That can be your perspective. It's just not very Christian. <laughs> you see, it's, it's not the picture that we have in the Scriptures. You see, the, the whole idea of singing together and the, the beauty of it is you don't have to have tons of talent to stand next to people and enjoy Jesus. It's not a necessity. Do the Scriptures kind of point us in the direction that, that the people that lead need to be skilled and, and gifted musicians and singers? Yeah, that's how the Scripture points us. But the beauty of the Gospel is this, that no matter who you are, no matter what neighborhood you live in, no matter what your background is, no matter what the color of your skin is, no matter whether you can sing or not sing, Jesus makes us family. Jesus brings us together. This is what Paul said we should do as we gather together musically. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Why should we do that? Why should we speak to one another in, in psalms and hymns and spiritual praise songs? Why, why should we do that? Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God. We sing those songs and we do it together so that we can be thankful, so that we can remember what it means to be thankful. Listen, over the last 46 years, there have been a few times that I stood in the pew next to some folks that couldn't sing a lick. Man, you just knew it as soon as the song cranked up, you know? They, they just didn't have it. But you know what? Some of those same people, I can see their faces right now, and they are some of the most fantastic and faithful and thankful Christians I've ever known. Not everybody's supposed to be on the stage holding a microphone. But all of us are supposed to engage together in worshiping Jesus Christ. It is a high and holy privilege. Mark Dever says this, Congregational singing is an expression of the unity and harmony of the gathered congregation. I love that. When, when we are singing holy, 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 when we're singing that together we are showing that we are unified. We are in harmony that God is holy, 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 and we are not. He is other, 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 and we are not. That's, that's exciting. That's, that's a moment. Dever goes on. The corporate worship gathering is a public meeting. We are intended to experience it aware of our togetherness. That doesn't mean it's, it's wrong for you to, to close your eyes. And that's not what we're saying. But we're saying that we should own the fact that we're doing this together. We should love the fact that we're doing this together. He goes on. Much of the edifying power of congregational singing actually comes from the presence of our fellow worshipers. If you're not a big singer, come sit on this row right here on Sunday mornings for the opening song. Because those kids sing. 
And it doesn't matter if they can sing good or not. They sing. One of them even asked me a few months ago, can you get me the words to the songs that we sing in big church so that when I get to big church, I'm ready? Shame on us, right? <laughs> so, so you may not think you can sing, and maybe you can't sing. That's all right. You know? but, but we all, it's not a joke. Well, you can all make a joyful nose. It, it's not a joke. It's not. You can make a joyful nose noise. You won't be condemned at this church. I love the beauty of our worship. And I love how you gather with us. We have an amazing choir. We have super musicians. They do a a great job of, of helping us love and adore our super great Savior. But we are not here to applaud them as they worship. We are here to worship with them. You know, I've loved from the very first Sunday I was here is that when the choir's singing, if anybody in the audience knows the song, they just sing. <laughs> I've really, I've never been in a church like that. It's fantastic. I remember the first Sunday, I was like, all oh, these people back here are singing. That's great. I love it. We, we are worshiping together. It's, it's what God has called us to do. David Mathis grew up in Spartanburg. He said this, Worshiping Jesus together may be the single most important thing we do. That what we do in this room may be the single most important thing we do as believers. It plays an indispensable role in rekindling our spiritual fire and keeping it burning. So why would we need our spiritual fires rekindled through worship? Listen to what Isaiah writes next. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. Waste places, desolate places, dead places, dark places, destitute places, defeated places, like the desert of deserts. It's it's an amazing picture. want the waste places to worship. See, the reason we need our fire rekindled in in worshiping and gathering together is because guess what? Sometimes our fires go out. Sometimes we need that fire rekindled. Sometimes we are in these desolate places. Isaiah does not say that the cool, comfortable kids from the cool, comfortable neighborhood that go to the cool, comfortable church are going to have a cool, comfortable worship service. No. He says the most defeated, most distressed, most depressed, most discouraged people of God were going to break forth and shout joyfully. You may be in a waste place today. Your heart and your mind may have that desolate, defeated feeling. I just want you to know that right now, you have the ability in Jesus to break forth and shout with joy. You do. How? Well, for the exact same reason that the Jewish people were going to break forth and shout with joy. Listen to the next part of verse 9. For the Lord has comforted his people. They were going to break forth and shout with joy because God was going to comfort them. Listen, if you're a Christian, God delights to comfort you. And if you're not a Christian, God desires to comfort you. I mean, just marinate on that for a moment. The the one true God of the universe, it's his passion to comfort you. Not to make you comfortable, 
but to comfort you. To help your heart and your mind and your soul know that you are known, that you are loved, that you are cared for, and that you are safe in Christ. Safe in Christ. I think sometimes we forget how powerful the comfort of God really is. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, we we don't always want the comfort of God. (laughs) We don't. I mean, if we're really honest, we really like being afraid, and we like being bitter, and we like being angry, and we like being apathetic. We really like being silent, and we like being loud, and we like complaining, and we like criticizing, and we like gossiping, and we like worrying, and we like stressing out. Yeah, we like it. Why? Because we know how to do those things. We're comfortable with our habits. And taking on the comfort of God means that we have to change. That we would have to change the way we think. And changing the way we think might be the hardest thing in the world to do. Alfred Tucker said this, to refuse to be comforted is to be guilty of a frustration of the merciful purposes of God towards us. It's an amazing thought. See, mercy is undeserved favor for misery. Mercy is for misery. How many of us wake up in the morning and say, man, I hope today is miserable. I hope my day is full of misery. They say misery loves company. I love misery, so company me up. Yeah, let's do this. We don't say that, do we? No. But when we refuse to look at and love and enjoy and obey the truth of God. When when we defiantly say no to God's ways, when we do life based on some principle that says, well, I'm free to do whatever I want. Well, I'm just following my heart. Well, I'm just following my feelings. Well, I'm just following my true self. When we do those things, we are guilty of being frustrated with God's desire to give us mercy. We're choosing misery over mercy. When we try to live life on our own terms, we don't care, right? We, we live on our own terms even if it hurts the people that love us. We'll live life on our own terms even if we are digging ourselves a hole that we won't get out of and we don't even care. We will live life on our own terms knowing that we are pushing mercy out of our lives. We'll live our life on our own terms knowing that we are keeping mercy away from us. We'll live our life on our own terms knowing that the one true God of the universe, he desires to give us mercy. He desires to show us compassion. He desires to love and care for us and make us safe. And we say, no. The people who were going to break forth and shout with joy, they were doing that because they were receiving the comfort of God. They weren't pushing it away. They were owning it. They were loving it. And it created joy in their lives. My wife's grandmother fell yesterday and, and they had to do some emergency surgery on her, on her hip. And I was working on my sermon yesterday morning when, when Karen sent me a text about her grandmother and And this was the sentence that I had just 
read from Matthew Henry. See how God resolves to comfort his people? I, even I, will do it. He takes the work into his own hands. See how he glories in it? He takes it among the titles of his honor to be the God that comforteth them that are cast down. He delights in being so. I immediately texted that to my mother-in-law because <laughs> I knew she was sitting in the hospital waiting for the doctors to come back and say, what, you know, what are we going to do? See, this is who God is. He desires. Listen, don't miss this. God is passionate. He desires. He delights to take a weird guy like me sitting in a McDonald's on a Saturday morning in South Carolina to read a sentence about his delight to comfort and make sure that it gets to a precious believer in a hospital in Arkansas. He does all that in a second, in a moment, in a blink. This is who he is. This is what he does. He loves doing it. Why? Why would we say, no, I'm going to follow my heart? Why would we say that? Why would we push God away? God delighted to comfort the people. And what was so comforting? How was he going to comfort them? Listen to the last part of verse 9. He has redeemed Jerusalem. There's our word from the beginning. There's the one word that can change your attitude and your emotions in a blink of a moment. There's the one word that can build confidence in your life, that can bring peace and hope and joy and calm, that can bring a smile to your face, a gleam to your eye, or if you can't do any of those things, will help you blink with joy. And what's that word? That word is redeemed. Redeemed, purchased, set free. This is what God does. Those Jewish people, they were going to break forth and they were going to shout with joy because they had the comfort of Almighty God that they were about to be set free. They were going to be redeemed. One of the most powerful stories in the Bible is the story of Hosea and Gomer. It's found in the, in the book called Hosea. Hosea lived about the same time that Isaiah lived and, and he was a very faithful husband to his wife, Gomer, and she was a very unfaithful wife to her husband. John Reed tells their story from Hosea's point of view in a monologue that he wrote. The title of it is The Story of a Love That Would Not Die. There'll be a a link uh, to this this whole monologue uh, at the end of the notes this week you can find online. And, And the scene that we're stepping into in the middle of his monologue is that that we have Gomer, she's been repeatedly unfaithful. And now she finds herself in a, in a rock and a hard place. And John Reed picks up there in that moment. I've shared this before. Um, it, never, it never gets old to me. This is what he says. It was just over a year ago that it happened. The blush of spring was beginning to touch our land. In the midst of my morning hour of meditation, God seemed to move me to go among the people of Samaria A sense of deep anticipation stirred me. I wandered through the streets. Soon I was standing in the slave market. It was a place I loathed. Then I saw a priest of Baal lead a woman to the slave block. 
My heart stood still. It was Gomer. Stark naked, she stood on the block, but no man stared in lust. She was broken, haggard, and thin as a wisp of smoke. Her ribs stood out beneath the skin. Her hair was matted and touched with streaks of gray. And in her eye was the flash of madness. I wept. Then softly the voice of God whispered to my heart. I paused, confused. The bidding reached 13 shekels of silver before I fully understood God's purposes. I bid 15 shekels of silver. There was a pause. A voice on the edge of the crowd shouted, 15 shekels and a homer of barley. 15 shekels and a homer and a half of barley, I cried. And the bidding was done. As I approached the slave block, a murmur of disbelief surged through the crowd. They knew me, and they knew Gomer. As I mounted the block, they leaned forward in anticipation. Surely I would strike her dead on the spot for her waywardness. But my heart flowed with love. I spoke to a merchant at a nearby booth. Bring that white robe on the end of the rack. I paid him the price, he asked. Then I tenderly drew the robe around Gomer's emaciated body. And this is what he said to her. Gomer, you are mine by the natural right of a husband. Now you are also mine because I have bought you for a price. You will no longer wander from me or play the harlot. You must be confined for a time. And then I will restore to you the full joys of womanhood. And then Reed writes this. She sighed and fainting fell into my arms. I held her. I don't know where you are today. I don't know where your mind and heart is. I don't know where your marriage is. I don't know where your life is with your kids, where life is like at work or school. Don't know what's going through your mind. Don't know what you're trying to figure out. But I can tell you this about Jesus Christ. There is a promise in him that you are never too far away to be held. You are never too far away to receive saving grace. You are never too far away to be redeemed. Never. Sometime earlier than chapter 52, Isaiah wrote this to the people. Isaiah 41, verse 14. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. There's a real term of endearment, right? Worm. (laughs) That that really, when, when we're looking for comfort for the defeat in life, nothing comforts us more than the one true God of the universe calling us a worm, right? But don't miss the beauty in that simple statement. Eric Raymond said this, Jesus resolutely marched to Calvary's crest to bear our shame. His cheeks took the blows, his body the phlegm of the angry mob, and his naked body was the subject of laughter and scorn. However, it was the thundering cannons of divine wrath that consumed him. The Savior did come to redeem, and the object of his redemption was a helpless, insignificant worm like me. 
I am so often plagued by short-term gospel memory issues. Today, I need a fresh reminder that I am a worm. But I am a worm with a redeemer. And this redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Dear Christian, you, you may be a worm, but you are a worm with a redeemer. You've been redeemed. You've been purchased. You've been set free. So Christians, we are redeemed. Let us break forth and shout with joy together. Christians, we are redeemed. Let us be comforted together. Dear Christian, we are redeemed. We are redeemed. We are purchased. We have been set free. Let us be redeemed together.